There's theoretically up to 170 different forms of folate, but there's at least a hundred different forms like found out in nature. So these things are, are far more complicated than people give them credit for. But in saying that, my message is don't stress out. Don't stress out so much about it. Meat food that provides as many different vitamins and minerals in necessary amounts as possible. But you want to take in what you need to either correct or prevent nutrient deficiency. But what exactly you need for, we'll say, like optimal health and throw that in quotes, like that's less understood. Hello and welcome back to the You're Great podcast with your host, Unique Hammond. Today's guest is Dr. William Wallace. He holds a master's degree in exercise and nutrition science. His focus is nutraceuticals. He has an incredible wealth of knowledge in the area of supplements. And as most of you know, I do not take, nor do I use a lot of supplements in my practice, but as a curious traveler in the space of health and nutrition and wellness, I also understand that they have incredible value to the human health experience and used properly in the hands of the professionals. They can be an amazing addition to someone's health journey should they need it. I was one of those people that they did not help my journey, but that doesn't mean that I'm not open to them as part of my future. Should I need them, I am excited to pick Dr. William Wallace's brain and here to learn because this is not my area of expertise. Hey, Dr. Wallace, welcome to the Your Great Podcast. I am very excited to have you here. Your expertise lie where mine do not in nutraceuticals. So welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I know that you, you tried to get me before and I'm notoriously hard to nail down for these things, but we did it. So so what drew you towards exercise and nutrition science and then ultimately nutraceuticals? I'm curious about that journey. Yeah, it's a, it actually, it's a very interesting journey. When I was doing my undergrad from 2009 to 2013, and I, I did a lot of like fooling around in my undergrad. So I was like, kind of coming up to the end of my junior junior year, beginning of my senior year, where I'd realized like, wow, I really don't have like a, I'm really not on a path, any actual path for myself here. I knew that I was very interested in the exercise sciences at that point. You know, I, I was very into working out. I was always talking to like a lot of my friends were in the exercise sciences, but I didn't have the appropriate prerequisites to enter into that major. So I was like, well, I just, I'm too late. So whatever. So I picked a, a major that I had no intention of ever using, but I was like, I could graduate semi on time with it, but I had to actually do an extra semester for that all the while. I was getting more involved in the exercise science department. You know, I went with them to a conference. I think it was the, gosh, ACSM conference, either in Rhode Island or Boston at the time. I, I was just very fascinated by it. I was like, man, you know, I, I should have taken my education more seriously at this point. And so I had told myself as I was coming to graduate, I, I took my, my education more seriously, my, my grades, and I did very well for at least my last year and a half in school. And told myself that I was going to take extra time, no matter how long it took to acquire the prerequisites to then go on to get into school for something that I actually wanted to do with my life. So I spent a year and a half out of school, working as a personal trainer, 
and also acquiring prerequisites to get accepted to grad school for the exercise sciences. And I had chosen at the time to go to the University of Tampa and got my master's in exercise and nutrition science. All the while, I still didn't really entirely know what, what it was I wanted to do with my life. So I did a lot of interning. I interned in strength and conditioning. Everybody at the time went there because they wanted to intern in a lab, but there was only about 11 spots. And I think we had I don't know, a class of like 50 or 60 something people. So not everybody got it. So you would let them know, like, hey, I'd like an intern here. And they'd kind of be like, okay, yeah, whatever. Like they not really take you seriously because when you actually get into research, you realize how like monotonous and boring it can be. And people who think that that's what they want to do, like they fall off they, very quickly, like very quickly in research, you learn like who's about it and who's not. The second semester I was there would just happen to be like my senior thesis semester. So I spent the entire semester studying a topic, gave a big presentation at the end of the semester to all of the staff and my classmates and everybody's allowed to like grill me on my topic. And after I had given the presentation, the guy at the time who was writing the lab came up to me and kind of like, I guess, saw, kind of saw how serious I was. And, you know, I guess, I suppose it was a good presentation. And he was like, cool, you're in. So shortly thereafter, I had, I suppose, worked my way up until one of the top spots in the lab. Like people were relying on me to prepare studies. I was running my own study as a PI very shortly after I first got in. At that particular time, a lot of the studies we were getting were companies from the nutraceutical industry, mostly sports nutrition, that were paying us grant money to test ingredients before they went to market with them. So there were a lot of like exercise science-based protocols. And so naturally, we were dealing a lot of sports nutrition companies, but that's where I kind of had my introduction to dealing with companies in the industry, but also being in like the research side of research and development. But I'd always had an interest in supplements. Even when I was in college working out, you're always in GNC, like walking around, reading everything. And at the time, thinking I knew a lot about those things. And on retrospect, I'm like, good God, how, like, how naive I was. So it started out as a, a fascination with sports, sports supplements. But this is also around the, the nootropics, when nootropic craze kind of started and started building out. So people were bringing things into the lab that like play with, basically. Because we all worked like very long hours in the lab, didn't get a lot of sleep. So there's a lot of self-experimentation going on at the time. And also like my main focus in grad school is neuromuscular physiology. So how the brain communicates with skeletal muscle and back and forth. So that really got me interested in you know, brain function, the workings of the brain. And that's, and so my interest in supplements went more down like supplements and, and brain health route. And that's why it, when I was doing my PhD, my dissertation and most of my work there was focused in like cognitive enhancing supplements, but not, not prescribed or say like non-prescribed use drug use, but over the counter dietary supplements that influenced brain function, purportedly at least. I, after grad school, I had worked in a contract research organization, which is a resource organization that sits outside of academia, but we still work with a lot of academic institutions where we just really weren't bound by the rules of academia at the time. Spent a couple of years doing that, still working with a lot of stuff, different supplement companies. And then I had eventually gotten hired on to work product development for a company called Life Extension. 
in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And so that was my transition really from having more of a sports supplement background into the health and longevity space. And so that for me, from an end, that was me also transitioning more from the research side of research and development to the actual develop side of research and development. And so I shifted a bit more into industry at that point. But all the while, I was still working with Life Extensions Lab to develop research protocols and then also write manuscripts because they had their own their own research center where they were testing compounds before they would bring them to market. Life Extension is has a great reputation for being probably one of the most scientifically reputable supplement companies and also trustworthy companies. It's interesting because somebody was talking to me about them once. He's like, yeah, like Life Extension, they don't really like do a whole lot new, do they? I'm like, you're shitting me, right? Like they're, they're so on the frontier of R&D that it goes over people's heads a lot of times. Like that's their biggest problem. Is sometimes their stuff is like a little bit too, too far out there, but you know, they really are trying to like advance advance the industry as well as like human health and nutrition. So everybody that I was around while I was there was far more intelligent and educated than I was. I was still going through my PhD and everybody's office to the right or left of me. They had been a PhD for 10 plus years. My direct superior had 20 years of drug development experience at Pfizer and these guys were phenomenal. So so I was very fortunate to kind of have my start in industry with those guys. And I, I learned a lot of the ins and outs and a lot of things that you should be considering and looking for, I guess, in different areas of product development. Nowadays, I'm still involved in sports nutrition. I'm also involved in the health and wellness space, which is where my true passion is because sports performance is like cool, but everybody just wanting to improve their wellness and just generally wanting to feel better. Like that is just so much more widely uh, applicable and, and the va- the value of which you can't quantify. And because of that, that's, that's what I, I'm the most interested in. But that anyways, that's like the, uh, a drawn out explanation, but still the, kind of the abbreviated story of how I got involved in the nutraceutical industry. And it's great. It's, I, Really enjoyed that. So somewhere along the way, after messing around in college, you lit fire. And once that fire was lit, it just kind of set you on your path, it sounds like. Basically, it's cliche, but I don't consider what I do work. Like, I, I love what I do and I, and I believe in what I do. You know, I, I, I believe in the effectiveness of nutraceuticals when used appropriately and under the right circumstances. So. It's important for me to to be realistic with where I'm at. They're like, of course, I'm a capitalist industry where, you know, we're trying to grow and, and build our business and, and build a client base. But at the same time, oh, I'm brutally aware of those things. But the, the primary mission for me is to develop things that can genuinely help subsets of people, depending on, you know, who they're geared towards. How important do you feel third-party testing is in, in the nutraceutical industry? Well, third-party testing is, it's interesting because I don't think a lot of people know this. I mean, this is like a cliche saying that people throw around. It's like the dietary supplement industry is not regulated. And those of us who are in the dietary supplement industry are like, well, tell me you don't know anything about the industry without telling me you don't know anything about the industry. That's like a dead giveaway. It's, it's absolutely a regulated industry. Now, there are areas that can be regulated more tightly. There are also areas that you know, a lot of us think regulated too tightly, but 
every product that is produced has to be formally tested in some way. Now, the thing I think the thing that a lot of people don't know though is that those testing require the requirements for testing actually fall on the manufacturer and not necessarily the brand that that owns the product. And not many brands do their own manufacturing. That's actually very rare. So where I am right now, we do all of our own manufacturing. We own about four different brands, but it's very, it's, and so we do, we manufacture all of our own stuff, but it's very rare to find that in the industry. Like the juggernaut companies usually don't own their own manufacturing. And yeah, testing requirements usually fall on the manufacturer and not the brands. So when you say third-party testing, you there's contract laboratories who are, exist for this specific purpose, and they have different certifications that you can look at and lean on and entrust for different testing standards. But a lot of lab, like big, big manufacturing facilities, a lot of them have in-house labs. In which case, it would really be considered contract lab. It's it's their lab, but for us, like say where I am, for as long as I've been here, it's a smaller operation. So what we do is we use contract laboratories where we qualify the laboratory and make sure that, you know, they dot their I's and cross their T's as far as like all the quality regulations go. Then we can use them to test the things that we produce. Just recently, we implemented our own testing in the facility. So I've been overseeing the building out of a microbiology lab on site. And that's kind of the start, but there, there are different testing requirements, like different things have to be tested. And so I think from the consumer standpoint, like the question you're asking, third-party testing, what people like to see. And also what I like to see is you want to find brands, even though they're not the ones required to do the testing. Of course, it's their responsibility to find good manufacturers that are playing by the rules and going by the book and doing the mandatory testing. But also you do like to see brands who go above and beyond what you just have to do. And so when they get something in, they may send their own products out or say composition testing to see, okay, is what we have on the label, like our label claim actually coming back within our specification. I know a recent example of a group of guys who I used to do some work with, who when they get a shipment in a product, they'll send a couple bottles out and they'll test a couple different ingredients on the label to see like, hey, are we meet so that they can produce that for their customers and show them like, hey, look, we're, we're going above and beyond for you guys. And they came back and the active materials were coming out of spec. Like there was like, no concentration of the top two ingredients in their products that they claimed on the label. And I know who they're manufacturing with. And it's actually a really good manufacturer. So like, wow, how did that happen? You know, and I even thought I had talked to somebody at that manufacturing facility at trade show and I was like, yeah, what happened there? And so they explained it to me and, you know, it was like there was a hiccup in quality. And so sometimes things, you know, things fall through the cracks if people really aren't on their shit. I guess I can't find a better way to put it. That's not terribly common with really good operations, but it does happen. So you do like to see brands who take it upon themselves to go above and beyond so that they can catch those kinds of things. But you can test a lot of things like every single product that's produced, it's mandatory. It has to be tested, undergo microbiology testing for bacteria. You have to test things like salmonella, staph, yeast and mold, E. coli, total aerobic, 
Heavy metals is more something that's conditional. You don't have to test all things for heavy metals because it's not applicable to everything. But if you're looking at like plant-based compounds, it's usually more applicable there versus like amino acids. Also like pesticide, herbicide, fungicide, insecticide, that kind of testing is not always mandatory. But again, when you're working with botanicals, what you would like to do, and it's a lot to figure out for yourself, but you would like to look at companies brands who have their own standards set for certain levels that they will or will not allow of those things. And there's also like, there are established levels. It's part of the U.S. pharmacopoeia standards. But like I said, sometimes it's not mandatory to test those things. So you'd like to know that the manufacturer is testing those things even if they don't have to. But I'll use life extension as an example. They had their own internal specifications for something like glyphosate. So even though the U.S. Pharmacopoeia and the U.S. Department of Agriculture have, well, the U.S. Pharmacopoeia determines the testing method used to test for glyphosate, but the U.S. Department of Agriculture sets a limit for glyphosate. So even it can be detectable in very small amounts, but as so long as it doesn't breach this level, you can consider it safe for human consumption, which some people would argue against. Some, you know, it's like whatever, regardless of what side of the fence you sit on there. You know, Life Extension as a company took stance where they were like, even if, if glyphosate is under the limit set by the USDA, if it's even detectable, we're not going to use the material. And so we had vetted, you know, we had vetted a certain material. It was a really cool material. They had really cool research. But when it came back, it was detectable for glyphosate. And it was such a small, small amount. But just because it was detectable, they were like, can't use it, you know? And so it helps when you're when you you know, making purchasing decisions that, you know, your brand, you know what they stand for. And also it does, you go a little bit too, too deep for maybe the, the ones of some people, but if you can find out like who's manufacturing them, what's the manufacturer faxes, then those things obviously help with transparency and making you feel good about what you're buying. But there is a lot, I mean, I know this is, Everything I've said so far is just so long-winded, but so there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of different working parts that, like I said, like the general consumer probably just doesn't want to take the time to know all that. So I guess the very best thing you can do is start with the brand because that's who you're buying through and get to know them. If they have all the proper protocols in place, then they should be able to tell you if you reach out to them and ask, they should be able to tell you what their standards are for certain things. You know, you may or may not be able to feel good about that. But like I said, there's there's a lot of working parts and everybody kind of has to be on their game to actually end up you know, producing something in the end that is worthwhile and within specification, I guess I should say. I love everything you're saying. And I know for most of my community to hear this, because I don't predominantly work with nutraceuticals for many reasons. But when I do, I always tell them to look for a reputable company. And it's personally not part of my practice to sell nutraceuticals. It's a way to keep me really food focused. I only use them on a need to basis with my clients. But I do think that there is this distrust of is what's in the product actually in the product. And I hear that a lot. So I am curious if somebody catches that one of their products isn't what it should be on the label, do they just eat that price or do, can those products end up in circulation in the market? They can certainly end up in circulation. Again, it really depends on 
the brand you're dealing with. Like if a brand is taking it upon themselves to send out for testing, then in theory, they're doing that because if it comes back out of stacks, then they're going to eat that cost, get rid of it and get another one because like that, you know, but if they're not doing that testing and it goes through, like, of course it can, it can wind up on the market and, you know, industry trust, it's something that we talk about within industry all the time, because there's a few bad players that make like being in the industry. Like I actually, I really do believe that there's more good players and there are bad ones, but the bad ones really you know, they, they really kind of stink it up for the rest of us trying, trying our best to do well by everybody. But in theory, if a brand is doing extra third party testing to make sure they have a quality product, then if the quality comes back less than adequate, then what they'll do is either eat the cost on it or like in the example that, that I just gave with these guys that, that I used to do some work with. They didn't have to eat the cost on it because the manufacturer, it's a good manufacturer and they knew that they screwed up. So the manufacturer ate the cost on it and then they re, and then they reproduced it. So sometimes the brand will eat the cost. Sometimes the manufacturer will eat the cost. But if it's a quality organization, then, you know, they'll do what they have to do to rectify it. But yes, there are bad players and not, not always bad players, but sometimes they're just negligent players. And what you'll have is like less than adequate product will wind up on market. There's always some bad seeds in every industry. So so when a company is choosing to come out with a product, this is something I'm really curious about. Let's just talk about iron without vitamin C in it. But vitamin C, it's a precursor to absorb iron. Like how do companies figure out what they're going to put on the market? I'll answer the, the actual question in a second. You don't really... But vitamin C is not necessarily a precursor to absorb iron, but if you have iron in a, like a non-protein balanced state, it tends to be less soluble in the form of like Fe3 plus ferric iron. And so vitamin C through its interaction with ferric iron in the gut can reduce it to Fe2 plus ferrous iron, making it more soluble and its solubility and valence. So it's, it's electrical charge at that point. It kind of fits better with the transporter it uses, one of those being the divalent metal transporter. Divalent Fe2 plus is divalent, so it's more likely to to go through that transport than if it was Fe3 plus ferric iron. And so, you know, but it really depends on when you're making a product, it, it helps to really, like, you have to establish a target, really, like, what, what exactly is this product you to doing, depending on, like, all brands have a demographic that they're catering to. But within your demographic, you also have sub-demographics, men, women, children, elderly. And once you establish a target, then everybody does it differently. But this is why formulating to me is fun. It was, that was kind of my, my end in the industry. Now, nowadays, I, I do much more than, than formulating. And I have guys on my PD team that can, can even help out with that. But it, formulating is like my first love because I consider it like an, an art. And to me... I liken it to being a chef, basically. And it's like, look, anybody can step into the kitchen and throw a bunch of stuff together and produce something that like tastes good. But if you're like, an educated chef and somebody throws like flop together, even if it tastes good and they put it in front of you, you're going to look at it like, like, what is, what is it? What am I looking at here? What is this? You know, and so you can produce, say, a product that maybe provides some kind of benefit. But A, I mean, 
what is the benefit? It, like, so it helps to establish a target because then you can communicate the message to the consumer. You could provide a bunch of like antioxidant compounds or a bunch of whatever, and somebody might get some kind of effect. But is that effect solving any pro? Is it solving a problem for the consumer or within the, the marketplace? So it all starts with actually identifying a, a target. And then from there, like I said, everybody does it differently. And because like I consider it an art form, like every, everybody has their way of doing things. Like, you know, like some artists have a certain twist that you can see within all of their work. And so everybody's a little bit unique. So it's difficult to judge some things, you know, with that kind of outlook, but also there are, and everybody has a different way of going about things. And for me personally, like I lean on actually published and peer reviewed literature to look at not only forms of things, but doses and very specific material down to the company, the exact company who's producing that material to see what's, what has shown to be effective because we don't really have anything else to go on besides that literature. Like you can always point out like, okay, sure. A lot of that literature is funded by industry. I mean, two thirds of all research, maybe a little bit more is funded, but you also have to kind of look at the logistics behind that. The U.S. government has a, a massive like research funds, but most of that is geared towards drug, like drug development and research. The food industry, which is like technically like supplement and food industry or like conjoined, there's no funding from the government set aside for those things. So who's going to fund that research? It's going to be the food industry. And so the best thing you can do is find the good players within that. Like there is publication bias, like companies are not going to want negative results that are published on the flip side of that. If it's like, so if I'm writing a company and I, and I produce something, let's say that like, I'm actually trying to bring an ingredient to market or a, or a product for that matter, I can fund research or even perform it myself. And if we come back with negative results, like I'm not going to want to publish that. At the same time, I also don't have to put that thing on the market. You know, it's like, I can, I can say like, well, this didn't work. We're not going to put this on the market because that would be the unethical, but also like, I'm not going to want to publish that, you know? So there are instances in which, well, people say, well, maybe you should publish that and just like let people know. And I think that that matters in certain circumstances and other circumstances, it doesn't really matter that much. But sure, like publication bias is definitely, anyway, so I'm, I'm kind of like falling off course a little bit here, but I like to lean on the actual literature. And then also within that, I, I try to put my own creative twist on things. There's so many different ways you can go into making a product, but I guess going back to the original question, it all starts with identifying a specific target because without that, then you just have like unspecific nothingness basically. But I would say that most companies, it seems like they are providing products that enhance or support human health would be the reason to have a nutraceutical. Would that be a correct assumption? To be honest, I, I don't know that that's a correct assumption. If I think about it, really, like, you know, most good companies will define their demographic and their, their targets, like what kind of problems they're trying to solve. There are other companies who are just companies, like they just want to make money. And it, it's not very obvious what kind of problem they're trying to, is there a problem they're addressing on the market? So there's, 
there's a little bit of both. So, you know, even though I'm, I'm pro industry in this, in this sense, I, I do see and understand and am aware of all the limitations to it. And I don't know that every company is actually producing things to try to better people's health. Some companies are just, just exist to make money. The thing with the supplement industry is that it's a very low barrier to entry. And that's where the bad players come in. It's not like we're out producing drugs where there's a much higher barrier to entry. They're much, it's much more, more tightly regulated. You need different credentials to, and people with credentials to actually get involved there. You don't need that in the supplement industry. You can see a trend, like a classic example is like the Dr. Oz effect talks about one thing. And then if you're sitting at home and you have like the entrepreneur spirit and you have money, you can get on the phone right then and there and call, call a manufacturing facility and get 2,500 units produced and get it thrown on Amazon and throw some marketing dollars at it. That happens. My practice is a food forward practice to really optimize nutrition before looking at a nutraceutical. But that is just scary to me to think about that of like this wily coyote is out there throwing out stuff and marketing it and going, this is the best. And, and the only thing you have to go on is their marketing and their, their word, so to speak. So. Yeah. And it's difficult. It is very difficult to navigate for somebody who's not educated in the space. One of the best things you can do is kind of like you're saying, what I'm also an advocate for is, you know, rely on, I guess what you would call more natural methods first, and then see like what's missing in there. And I say this all the time. Like I know that some people, because I talk about nutraceuticals and a lot of my work is involved in this, think that I'm like so pro supplement. I'm like, I'm not an idiot. You know, like I understand their place in things. It's like, it's, it's called a supplement. It's not a substitution for something that you should be doing. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm a big fan of multivitamin supplements. I think that they can help fill gaps, but also one of the limitations to that is for somebody who doesn't think about it like that, they may actually be more loose in other health practices or food practices. Like, well, my multivitamin's covering me. It's like, that's not, that's not how you're supposed to do it. You know, it's like my life is pretty chaotic from a work standpoint. So I have found generally the kind of nutritional protocol that works well for me, but sometimes I don't always have time to make sure that like I have really nice cooked meals. So like I'll put things together that even though they might be like nutritionally dense, like like a protein shake in the morning with mixed berries and oats and like all that crap, then I may be like, I may be missing certain vitamins. And when I get certain blood levels checked of something like come back short and one thing like, oh, wow, like I thought that I was good there, you know, but maybe like nobody's perfect and not everybody's getting biomarker status checked like all, all the time. So it, what it can do is it can like add some reassurance and again, like fill gaps, but like that's the point. It's a supplement and it's not a substitution for something that you should be doing to begin with. How much do you think the world of genetics is going to change supplementation? Because I, I happen to be one of those people who I had like a mad, crazy love affair with supplements in my 20s and early 30s where I was like, yeah, I am supplementing my way to better health. I'm kind of eating okay. I'm definitely drinking more than I should and working out too hard and not considering how much all of that is depleting nutrients versus what I'm putting in and just thought, I was great, but a lot of the supplements I was taking were actually contributing to severe anxiety because my body wasn't interacting with maybe the B12 very well or whatever. And going off a lot of that stuff 
my anxiety and also cleaning up my diet and a lot of my habits led to me feeling a lot better and calm. And seeing that difference and then doctors being like, oh, you have this MTHFR mutation and you should take a methylated vitamin. And then I started that and I felt really bad and have felt the best I've ever felt off. Not to say that I wouldn't be open to supplements in the future, but how much do you feel that kind of genetic aspect will play a part in the form? I mean, it already does. You already see a lot of companies doing methylated and considering kind of these genetic mutations, but yeah. That's the direct, that is the direction that the industry is going. You know, personalized nutrition is the hot thing, like the next hot thing. So you do have companies out there trying to modify or enhance the way that genetic testing is done and then also perform research like with nutraceuticals or different dietary compounds based on that to see, you know, how effects actually play out in the real world. So we're definitely on our way there. I, where I kind of stand with those things at the moment is like, obviously different compounds affect people differently. And one of the primary things that affects those differences are a lot of like, a lot of that variance can be attributed to genetics in some cases. Where we're at right now is we're not exactly far enough along to really extrapolate or, or I think determine not all the time, at least like develop like protocols that would be super effective based simply on looking at somebody's genetics. We're headed in that direction, but it is important to know in some cases, like the, the MTHFR, like you, that's a, a big one that people always bring up because it's, it's just a hot one. It's just a hot one to talk about. But at the same time, like that one's a little bit blown out of proportion, like about 40%, I don't want to say only about 40% of people, 40% of people have that genetic mutation and it affects like one or two parts of the gene. Normally you have, you have different variants. You have the gene itself is C677T and the variant where there's reduced enzyme activity is 677PT or you have the A1298C and the 1298CC one will lower enzyme activity. And if somebody is a heterozygote, meaning that they only have one mutant allele, then enzyme activity is still functioning at about 65% capacity. If you're a homozygote, meaning you have two of those mutations, then you'll have an MTHFR enzyme operating at about 30% capacity. So it's not like you're not turning over any unmethylated folate at all. So people kind of blow that one out of proportion. At the same time, you can't look at one G because there's other things to consider too, like taking high doses of something like a methylated folate, it can trigger mania in some people. It can actually trigger mania or anxiety in some people. So you can't look at a single gene and then extrapolate like an outcome, especially when we're talking about like nutritional outcomes. So I do think that personalized nutrition is as of right now, where the industry is headed in the way of the, the future, I suppose you can say. But as right now, as at this point in time, I wouldn't lean on it too heavily if I were somebody trying to make decisions, but I wouldn't stress too much about trying to figure out all of your different genetic variants and how that's going to influence your nutritional decision. Does it matter? Yes. I just wouldn't overly stress about it if I were somebody because we're just not there with our understanding of those things to make like amazing determinations yet. 
I agree. I remember it coming up. And at the time I was just really sick. So they were throwing a bunch of, my doctors were throwing a bunch of shit at the wall and it was like, oh, you have this variant. Let's get you on and your, you know, B vitamins are low and you're folate. So let's get you on this methylated vitamin. I just remember I was a crazy person and I was just like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> like, this is fucked up and went off and was, the relief was incredible. And I think that there is this, this pathway is pretty blown out of proportion. My B12, everything now is great, but mostly that was related to my gut just not being great at the time. So once I healed my gut, I was able to absorb nutrients from my food properly. And now my my folate and my B12 are all at really great levels. So now I think as we move into the future, then we're going to get a whole lot better at being able to look at those things and then determine what kind of nutritional protocols work best for somebody. And, uh, but we're not even, we're not halfway there. I would say we're like, we're starting to get some pretty good insight, but that, you know, I I don't know. It's just, it's just not something that that I try to stress too much about day to day. It's good to know the associations that some of those things have with nutritional outcomes. I I wouldn't be sitting at home with a magnifying glass, like looking over your 23andMe report and then like, you know, it's like, I don't know. I just. I just wouldn't get too involved in it right now. I will say it does come in handy. I mean, I think before genetic testing came along, you just looked at your family genetics, right? Lineage. My mom, pre-diabetic. My grandma, type 2 diabetic. And then in 23andMe, it's like, oh yeah, you you definitely lean towards becoming type 2 diabetic. And the way before ever getting that testing, I could feel how my body interacts with sugar is very different. Even though my blood sugar has always been healthy, I can feel I have a tendency. So I got off of sugar and everything is really healthy. So I do think genetics are really interesting. I'm sidestepping genetics by my nutrition, but I feel it. Like I feel this like creepy little, you know, like sugar. <laughs> I guess it depends. Everybody like has different things that they create, right? I mean, carbohydrates are your preferred source of energy. Do you want to be like cramming them down in the form of like high fructose foods or like high processed sugar foods? And I know it probably helps to not be spiking blood sugar levels multiple times throughout the day, like more than you need to with a standard carbohydrate containing diet. Genetics aren't destiny. That's another cliche that we hear a lot. So if you can formulate a diet, really like the best kind of diet is one that that keeps you metabolically healthy and and the biggest consideration there. Well, there's two massive considerations there, but one of the bigger ones that maybe you can apply the most weight to this one is staying within energy boundaries. But that as well, that considers not too little, but also not too much. So, uh, you know, people always say, focus a lot on the not too much. And so they cut back, 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 back and be like, well, there's another boundary there to consider. And that's the not too, that's the not too little boundary. Oh, yeah. I, I'm passionate about the not too little because I feel like women fall into that category of starvation, which is Leah, that low energy availability where they're just running on fumes because they're not really nourishing themselves properly. It is a balance. And I, I don't think that human nature is by nature very balanced. I think that we tend to go to highs and lows with a lot of things. And I especially see that in my practice where women come to me just exhausted and just by bumping up their nutrient density, they can pull themselves out of this exhausted kind of malaise state that they get into by not nourishing their bodies properly. And then a lot of people will come to me not nourishing their body properly and on a lot of supplements. So to me, 
what I'll do is I'll pull them off the supplements and then nourish them and then and then see where the deficiencies lie that they might need to shore up. But it's it's fascinating. The health world has made food such a battleground that people really don't know how to nourish themselves anymore. That's true. There's there's an extreme lack of what I'll call education. And I don't mean formal education when it comes to nutrition. And it's it's really unfortunate because it's this is something that I've observed over time, but it's, you know, I've been thinking about it a whole lot recently. And that the even the what you might call the more educated sector of nutrition, that it's not very welcoming and it's not very patient and it's pretty disparaging. And I think that that's unfortunate because there are a lot of people who may not have the right ideas about nutrition or the right insights about nutrition, and they don't need a disparagement. It might be difficult to encourage them because that might not be where they're at yet, but, but you can be patient with them and come to them from a place of understanding like nutrition, because it's strong nutritional beliefs have crossed the threshold of beliefs that now sit with like strong religious and political beliefs. Sometimes the best way to approach something, if somebody has, let's say maybe the wrong or maybe not the right idea about something. And the best way to go about that is usually not to try to get them to change. Like, say you go into something like I'm going to prove you wrong or show you that I know better than you or going in with the idea that I'm going to change your mind the best thing to do is walk in with patience and understanding. And then by proxy, you may be able to develop some insight into them that can get them to shift their belief. Usually the right approach to take isn't, I'm going to change your mind. But patience and understanding is something that lacks in the education space, especially in the sector of what I would call more educated nutrition folks. What do you feel like is the correct approach to nutrition? Obviously, your background is in sports nutrition. And I think about this a lot. I'm like, okay, sports nutrition is probably focused on performance, right? So maybe a more performance-driven nutrition. Well, sports nutrition is different because what, what's best for performance is not always best for health. Those two things are... True. Those two, <laughs> those two things they have to be separated. Doesn't that seem kind of crazy, though, that you would do something for performance that isn't great for your long-term health necessarily? Yeah. Well, you think even at the highest level of sports, like in order to succeed, you guys would take anabolic steroids, performance-enhancing drugs that might not be conducive to their long-term health, but it will certainly help their careers in the short term, help them make more money, help them perform better, win awards, you know. So so what's best for performance, what's best for health, those two things like have to be separated now like of course you'd like to have like a foundation of health to support those things like that's a whole nother discussion so i guess like the best way like what's the best way to look at nutrition it really depends on what you're what you're focused on so if you are an athlete a high level athlete or like an athlete of any kind and like your goal your primary goal is i want to perform then the way you have to look at nutrition is going to be different than somebody who's like well my main goal is to be metabolically healthy okay so uh, what would that look like? You somebody else, like my main goal is to lose weight, but you know, losing weight, although it can coincide with good health, doesn't, it doesn't always gel with or equate to equate to good health. So 
the best way to look at nutrition really comes down to, and you have to pick a target. Like, what is it you're actually aiming at? Let's say great health. It's not just a lifespan, it's health span, right? And I know that that's like the big term today, but I think it should have always been the term of like, how not to live a long life, but a healthy life. So what would you, what would, how would you define that? Yeah, generally, I would think that the best ways to look at your nutrition, again, this is actually regardless of the diet, this is widely applicable. There are some fundamental definitions or say characteristics of what good nutrition is that you have to pay attention to regardless of what your goals are. And I, I know that I've talked about this publicly before, but there's like, there's four things that I can come up with. And that's the two most important that require the most weight. One of those is what I'd already said, it's staying within energy and take boundaries for whatever goals you're trying to hit or your targets. It's not too little and not too much. Considering energy intake, mostly the other lofty consideration is a nutritional protocol that provides adequate amount of essential micro and macronutrients that includes essential vitamins and minerals, as well as protein, fats, carbohydrates. Of course, if you're like, oh, I'm keto, be like, okay, well then whatever you throw away the carbohydrates. For most people, essential nutrient macronutrients like protein, fats, and carbohydrates, but thirdly, you want to adopt dietary practices that promote physical, mental, and social well-being. And like that physical, mental, and social well-being, of course, there's a lot of people, including myself, that would argue that the definition of health is it's not, health isn't very well-defined because it's not a, it's not a static. It's like, you know, so there's no like, there is no perfect state of health that I'm aware of at least. But I do think that a diet that helps promote or improve physical, social, and mental well-being, like that's at least a good start. And then lastly is a diet that reduces your risk for specifically nutrition-related disease. In this case, the big ones we're talking about would be like diabetes, which would increase your risk for all kinds of other diseases. But I think that those four characteristics that if you can keep those things at the forefront of your mind when developing a nutritional protocol for yourself, like those probably go the farthest way in helping you achieve what we'll call a state of health through nutrition. Of course, other things are at play. You have sleep, exercise, social interactions, all that. But at least if we're focusing on nutrition, I think that being mindful of those four characteristics will take you farther than anything else. And also I try I provide those while trying to keep things as simple as possible for people because it's still general enough that it allows you to play within that space. Yeah. I would say I agree with that. Sunshine, great nutrition, community, movement. I think that's such an interesting one. When I was sick, I couldn't move, you know, and it's and it's an interesting thing how movement is such a gift. And it was something that I really took for granted until I was sick. And then once I couldn't move, I was like, oh, wow. I think I tend to be an inflammatory person where I have to have recovery days. If I don't, then I can just build inflammation instead of it kind of coming up and down like a normal human might could help with long-term health. I, I do find the Blue Zone people really fascinating because they don't do any formal movement. They just live their life and move, ride a bike, walk, Arm. What do you think about formal 
most of us sit at a computer all day, like myself, where I'm like, if I didn't work out, the only thing active on me would be my fingers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't live on an island somewhere where I bike everywhere, sadly. Now, any kind of movement is beneficial. Like, even like, you know, I think that the exercise community, the general health community is starting to recognize more and more just walking is a super underrated movement. You know, even studies looking at the movement that means stay at home, like stay at home moms, energy expenditure, or like, you know, neat movement within a day, like doing laundry, gardening, you know, vacuuming around the house, like how beneficial that might be for actually meeting just general movement recommendations. Of course, like something like walking is great. So it's not really so much about what this is what you shouldn't be doing. It's more about like, what can you do right now? And if you can adopt yourself to that, then anything, anything in the world is better than nothing in this case. Okay. Thank you. What should the neophyte out in the world roaming the halls of health food stores look for in nutraceutical? Well, that's an interesting question. Again, when I go back to the personalized nutrition approach, it really depends like what you need, you know. So get blood work. Don't just guess and, and start grabbing stuff going, I think I need this. Well, maybe. Blood work can only tell you so much and it's very, blood work's limited. I just filmed podcasts talking about blood work and the limitations, like super in depth, but the limitations of looking at certain nutritional biomarkers because we don't have reliable or valid biomarkers for like say every essential vitamin and mineral. Some vitamins and minerals are so tightly controlled by the body that a simple blood marker just won't do. There are good blood markers for other things like serum, serum vitamin D, like that's a good, that's an actually good established biomarker. Same thing with vitamin C. For other compounds like vitamin A, zinc, magnesium, even just iron, iron status, you can figure out by using about five different biomarkers together, but like zinc, magnesium, calcium, vitamin A, like those don't really tell you a whole lot if you just measure them in the blood because they're so tightly controlled. Now, if you're like approaching an, an actual state of deficiency, then they might be somewhat reflective of that. But if you're at that point with some of those vitamins, then you probably have like some kind of clinical manifestation that you're trying to get sorted out. So blood work can be useful in some cases. If we're talking about essential nutrients, mostly vitamins and minerals, in some cases can be helpful. In other cases, you're not so reflective of something like vitamin status. If you're not somebody who understands the space very well, then it does help to say consult Somebody who I might consider, like I use the term like expert really loosely here. The medical doctors aren't always experts here, but it does help. It, you know, it does help in some cases if you have a doctor who you trust or who you believe is good with these kinds of things, then you can work with them. You can work with, you know, some functional doctors who I, I know some, I know some great ones. I know some really crappy ones, but if you can find like a health professional that can help guide you and help determine like what things might be best for you, if you need anything, if you need anything extra at all, then that helps. I think that probably the two biggest things for somebody who's maybe just starting out and trying to figure out what they might need would be one, try to find a health professional who you can trust, not just somebody who seems confident, because I know that like part of the consumer trust model is like, consumers actually pay more attention. They seem to care three to five times more about somebody's confidence than they do their actual competence. So try to find a health professional who's actually competent in these things. And yes, that is a separate construct than confidence in something. 
But then, you know, secondly, you can do research on certain brands to see, okay, well, I don't know if I'm going to end up taking a nutraceutical at all. But if I'm going to get a nutraceutical one, your health professional could already know what, which brands are regular or not. But like, then you can start to educate yourself on, okay, what kind of things can I look for in a brand to determine brand trust? And so there are, you can always reach out and talk to a company representative directly. Sometimes that's not widely available. When looking at a doctor, what certifications would you say allow them to understand nutraceuticals on the level that someone like yourself might, for example, and and to actually give the person in front of them something that is useful? Because I think there is a lot of people out there going, oh, everybody should take these supplements. And I look at that and I'm like, why? Why should everybody take those supplements? Like, yeah, it's kind of hard to find somebody who understands nutraceuticals. Like, like even within the industry, it's they exist, but you're not going to find them a whole lot. It's, there aren't like certifications that exist that can like tell you this person knows a lot about like supplements and stuff. If somebody has a PhD in nutrition, sorry, that doesn't always cut it. I saw a PhD in nutrition post something about supplements the other day and, and this person's like a, a sports nutritionist and like I couldn't have rolled, if I could roll my eyes any harder, they'd fall in the back of my, they would fall in the back of my head. I'm like, wow, you know, but. So there's no certifications that exist. That's the weird thing about the industry, especially when you get into like the credential part of the industry. Like there's no direct path into this industry. So you kind of just like fall into this industry. So there's not like, well, this person has this certification. Like if somebody's a medical doctor um, or an oncologist, they have an actual medical degree in oncology, then you know, well, this person must know something about oncology, right? But, you know, just because somebody has a PhD in nutrition or like, yeah, like I work in the nutraceutical industry, that doesn't mean they always have the best insight to give you. So rather than looking for like certifications and qualifications, not to say that those things are nothing. I think what you had just mentioned is a good thing to look out for red flags and guidance. And that's usually if somebody comes at you with these like all or nothing situations, then that's like red flag, you know, try to look at it like as if you're dating somebody and like, red, you know, you hear something like, red, 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 I don't know if I, you know, just like something, if something doesn't sound right, then of course, like that's not always an indicator that something's not right. Cause you might just have a knowledge schema that's so developed towards something that if I tell you something you don't like, you're like, well, that doesn't sound right. Like, yeah, I mean, you might not agree with it, but whatever. So I would, I would look for it's really, it's a dead giveaway when you have people giving you these like all or all or nothings. And again, I'm like inadvertently calling people out here, gentlemen who's like entirely against supplemental vitamin D3s, like don't ever take it because it raises LDL cholesterol. Like, give me a break. Like, no, it doesn't. It, it might raise your cholesterol if you're taking 50,000 IUs, which is more than 12 times above the upper limit. And like people who are already metabolically unhealthy. But anyways, if, if somebody gives you an all or nothing, it's usually a red flag. Like you have to be taking these. Everybody needs this. You're like that, like really, like that doesn't, something about that just doesn't sound right internally. So it's better to look for red flags in advice because it is tough. Again, if you're uneducated and somebody comes to you using like big scientific words and they sound confident, then you're like, yeah, like, I'm in. Like, you just like, you know so much about this. You must know so much about this. You're so confident and you use such big words. So it, it is really hard for somebody who can't pinpoint bullshit. 
Well, because a lot of the social health space is driven by fear. Like if you don't do these things, you're going to be deficient and then you're going to be left open for disease. And, you know, so there's a lot of fear, I think, in the health space where people second guess and they're like, I don't know. Well, there's the reverse effect as well. You have people that play on the reverse effect. They go, ah, people tell you you need this. You don't need any of this. And it's like, Fair. It's like there, there is a middle space. Like, look, some people might not need any of this. Some people might like this. Yeah. This might, this might help some people. Yeah. Some people, some people don't need this. So like, I don't, when I hear somebody saying like, you don't need any of this, you're like, okay. So like you're playing on the opposite of the fear approach. It's like, that might not be a good message for everybody to hear because some people might benefit from X, whereas other people might not need X. So usually if you can train yourself to kind of think in that middle space, that's usually where the answer lies because everything is, again, personalized nutrition. Like everything is so cir- circumstantial. Like everything is circumstantial. You can't even look at one study, like randomized controlled trials. Like, sure, like that's the, the surest way to establish a cause and effect relationship between something. But at the same time, you can't extrapolate meaning outside of the exact context of what was shown in that one thing. You don't look at one study and come up with a decision. It's like, Every piece of information is like a puzzle piece in a puzzle. One piece of information is not the full puzzle image. It's a piece within the puzzle and you have to be able to measure it up and see like, how does this fit in the grand schema of things? I think when it comes to nutrition, you have to train yourself to think like circumstantially, like under what circumstances is something beneficial under what circumstances is something harmful. Yeah, that a balanced approach versus the, these black or white, right? It's good or bad. It's kind of how I run my practice. I'm like, let's start here and let's optimize nutrition and then let's see if something is needed. Because if you feel amazing and then you can go off that as well. I do think blood biomarkers are interesting. I get them done myself a few times every year just to track my autoimmune disorder and make sure everything is correct. I also am aware that they're just a snapshot in time. Let's say I had a really hard workout and I depleted nutrients. And then a few days later, I got my blood drawn. That may not be accurate to the day-to-day functioning of my body as well. Would that, does that sound correct? It does, right? Because depending on, depending on the biomarker you're looking at, assuming it's even a, a sound biomarker, like different vitamins, minerals, like they appear like even in blood in different forms, like magnesium itself appears in blood in three different forms. And you can maybe take a a snapshot biomarker and it can be reflective of like supplemental intake because you know usually supplementals with like a bolus but it's not reflective of like dietary intake that can be the case with a lot of different like folate exactly like red blood cell folate is indicative of long-term folate intake so like that's that's a good one it's also the only biomarker that's indicative of girl 2 defect risk but so like, that would be a good one to look at, okay, how's, how's, is my, like, it's reflective of folate intake. And it's also more responsive to folate versus folic acid compared to regular serum folate, where you're like just checking serum levels, then it would be more responsive to folic acid than it's responsive to folate. So it's, it would be more reflective of short-term intake, but also it could be short-term intake from fortified foods. And again, we talked about before, depending on, you know, somebody's genetic makeup, like maybe they're not utilizing that the best way. I don't know. So like biomarkers can be good and you just need to be aware of what they are and are not reflective of, depending on the specific biomarker. Some, some biomarkers are reflective of 
long-term nutrient intake, some are not. Amazing. So you can't really go out and get a blood test, depending on what shows up on the blood test, create like a hardcore plan from it. Is it be- more beneficial to track things over time to see how things are trending? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could, that, that, that's absolutely better than taking a snapshot. Unless you're in like a wild deficiency state, then a snapshot can tell you enough, right? You got to do better. But that's why it helps again to work with a competent healthcare professional who can determine like, hey, these are the biomarkers that we shouldn't be looking at based on your circumstances. Like, here's why we look at these biomarkers together. And here's what these biomarkers mean. There are professionals that exist for this very reason. But again, you know, when you're as involved in this space as I am, you, you realize that like not everybody's is 100% competent. Like not, you know, I'm not 100% competent. There are competent people out there. They can be tough to find sometimes, but they do exist. They do exist for these reasons. Yeah, fair. And and I would say I've, I definitely ran the gamut that all the doctors that I thought were amazing when I was in my 20s and when I got to my 30s and got really sick, all those doctors had no idea what to do with me. They were just like, it was like a hot potato. <laughs> like, you take her. No, you take her. So I was like, wait a minute. I thought I had these amazing doctors. And now I realize that you're amazing as long as I'm healthy, but maybe not as great now that I'm sick. So well, there's um, just, there's just, too, there's just too many things to know. You know, it's like not, not one person just can't know everything there is to know. There's too many things. That's why you can't, you can't rely on one person or one entity as a guy. This is like my single source of who I go to for all things. Like if somebody's like, I come to you for all these things, like, uh, yeah, I, w- I would, I would never recommend myself for somebody to come to me for like all their nutritional info. Like that'd be the dumbest thing that you could do. Like, don't do that. You know, like there's just too many things to know. I don't, I don't know everything. I don't know anybody that knows everything. There's too many variables too. I think that each person is just individual. And I do believe that that's why there's so many different, as crazy as it is, there's so many different protocols out there because there's so many different people and genetics and metabolic types and deficiencies and stuff going on. So it, to say that there's a one size fits all would feel like a pretty ignorant position to take or, or just really out of touch. Yeah, agreed. Cool. I had wanted to talk about, you know, if a person's just taking zinc, do they have to worry about depleting copper? We can take on that one really a quick. Stab? Cool. Sure. Yeah. What should what should people think about when they're taking just one nutrient like that? I have a general thought, but there's a couple thoughts that you actually have to kind of consider to to kind of throw them together here. One, I think that people make far too much about the nutrient competition thing. If you knew all the different nutrient interactions that are happening in your gut with the oxidizing or reducing reactions like chelating, I mean, there's just, there's so many interactions that are happening in your gut when you eat food. And if you knew them all, if you're one of these people that stress out about nutrient interactions, like you would just never eat, you know, be like how. So I would. Okay. But hold on. Do foods contain the most balanced version of this conversation? The the right amounts of copper versus zinc or iron versus calcium? Like is, is food a pretty perfect snapshot that nutraceuticals are trying to emulate? Would you say? It just depends. It just depends on the food. Like take iron, for instance, like iron from like non-heme ferric iron, non-heme iron is typically insoluble in ferric form from plants and its bioavailability is somewhere between like five and 15% or something like that. But 
Steam iron is typically more soluble when found in animal product meat sources and it's far more bioavailable. So in like the presence of protein, same with magnesium, magnesium is more bioavailable in the presence of protein. And like within food, within a food matrix, you have different form, let's say vitamins, minerals are typically found, like I would say like in different charge states, but they they can also be like bound to protein and like other complexes. Vitamins are a little bit different because they can be found in entirely different forms. Like you have, like use riboflavin B2, for example, you find like riboflavin, if you find it, flavin mononucleotide, flavin adenine dinucleotide, those are the actual enzyme forms, the active forms. Even folate is actually a great one. So you know, in the B9 family, it's not just folate, it's not like the, the thing, you know, there's a, there are, I think about 100 different forms of folate found in nature and based on its chemical structure, there's theoretically 100 and up to 170 different forms of folate, but there's at least a hundred different forms like found, found out in nature. So these things are, are far more complicated than people give them credit for, but in saying that my message is don't stress out, don't stress out so much about it. Because when you are taking in food, like vitamins, you have, again, some are bound to protein, some are not bound to protein. Some are even like contained and bound by things that feel like, oh, like an anti-nutrient, like phytic acid. What you do, you do metabolize phytic acid. You have enzymes that can break that down and liberate the nutrients like zinc, magnesium. You can liberate that from the food matrix. It depends what kind of food you're eating. You know, of course, like eat, eat food that provides as many different vitamins and minerals in necessary amounts as possible. But on the flip side of that, you want to take in what you need to either correct or prevent nutrient deficiency. But what exactly you need for, we'll say like optimal health and throw that in quotes, like that's less understood. But I mean, but the first step is to correct or prevent deficiency. And then from there, you can just try to figure out what it is you need for this so we'll call better functioning. And that now all just depends on what kinds of food you're eating really. But when it comes to like nutrient interactions from supplements, the reason that that's more relevant to supplemental intake, because I always think that most people don't need to worry about too many kinds of interactions when you're eating food, especially if you're like cooking food. I know the big like anti-nutrients and blah, blah, blah. But you know, like when, if you're actually like cooking foods and stuff, then like a lot of the, the fear associated with those things gets wiped out. And also like the, the fear that's even established is based on animal models that are like the way they're, the way that they were designed is not even nearly reflective of a whole food diet humans. But so with supplements, it's something to consider because of course, zinc, the zinc copper one is like a big one. It's a popular one that everybody talks about <laughs> because zinc, your supplemental form is typically taken in higher doses. If you're taking supplements, supplemental form, like typically or it's a lot easier to take in what we call like maybe super physiological doses, doses that you typically wouldn't find just in like a typical food matrix in food form, unless you were really like really shown in town every day. But copper and zinc, they compete for the same transporter in some cases, but they also use different transporters. So do you need to worry about it? Like short term, if you're taking 50 milligrams of zinc, which is a lot. And like, that's the dose where it's like, okay, if you're taking 50 milligrams of zinc every day for a period of like up to two weeks, you may run the risk of copper depletion. Why? Because maybe not enough copper from food is being absorbed because you're taking, you know, that zinc is, is fighting to be absorbed through certain transporters versus others. 
but also depending on the type of copper you're taking in, it might be using a different transporter because you have a Cooper's copper, Cooper copper, you, but they're both like, I mean, monovalent. I think they're both monovalent. When it comes to like supplemental, if somebody's like, yeah, like I took a 50 milligram zinc for like the couple of days that like I had a cold. And like, then don't like that, like, just don't stress about it. It's not really a big deal, but I like, do you need 50 milligrams of zinc every day? I mean, the RDA is like what, 11 milligrams for men and eight milligrams for women, unless you're pregnant, then I think it's 11 or 12 milligrams. And of course you can make the argument that that's just enough to prevent certain deficiency disease, maybe not enough for like optimal function, but most people don't need 50 milligrams every single day. So if you're just doing that for a short term, we can't equate short-term competition with like long-term deficiency. Those two things like that, those are not the same thing. So I think that people make too much of a big stink over it. And it's really only something that we have to consider if we're taking in very high doses of one thing and then stretching that out over a long period of time. And typically you think about nutraceuticals because when you're taking nutraceuticals, it's common and easy to take higher doses of something than you would if found in a food matrix. Totally. So if you're using something, if you're doing a high dose of something on a regular basis, then it then one might worry that they're throwing something out of balance versus if you're taking it for a short duration for your immune system or whatever, it probably <laughs> isn't going to have any long-term effects. Yeah, exactly. So it's all, again, it's within boundaries. It's like some of something's good. Yeah. Too much of something may even be better, but short term, like it's not always better, but maybe it is, but maybe it's only short term because too much of something, at least long term, usually not better. When I say copper IUD, do you think that person needs zinc because they have copper living in their body? I wouldn't know the, let's say precise answer for this, but the answer kind of falls into a one. There's different, there are different types of copper, different like forms of copper that render the molecule either more or less easily to be transported and excreted by the body. But also with like trace minerals, you do have to be careful. You have macro minerals and trace minerals, trace minerals, you need like microgram to milligram amounts. And like what the RDA of copper is like one milligram. And so different forms are transported differently. They're excreted differently. Something like iron, like iron poisoning. And it's, I think it's the primary, like iron poisoning children is like the number one cause of death from like poisoning. So like it, trace minerals can, they, they can accumulate pretty easily. Some of them are difficult to excrete like iron. Of course, like you can excrete it in like sweat and urine and stuff like that. But like the rates at which you do it's not it's not that of like macro minerals so it really all comes down to well one again form because that affects how the body transports and stores it but also concentration and you know it's a trace mineral for a reason you don't really need a lot of it you need the right forms and in the right amount but it's not terribly difficult to i would say like overdose on these things yeah sounds scary to me. I know people who are like trace mineral every single day and I'm like, well, how much of that trace mineral do you actually need? Thank you for your time today, Dr. Wallace. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, great insights. You sound like a very balanced person in the department of the role that 
food and nutraceuticals play in the health field. So I appreciate that. And that's why I've been following you for a while is that I appreciate your approach and the knowledge that you share because I always learn something new. Well, thank you. I try to be balanced at least. At least I am in some ways, I think, or some others, but I try, <laughs> I try here. Doing a great job. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today for my conversation with Dr. William Wallace. I had so much fun picking his brain. Really, I could have done it all day because he contains the kind of knowledge in there that you know you could just be learning a lot all the time, which is my love language. I love learning. I hope you enjoyed that. Obviously, I'm, I'm going to try to get him back on the podcast. He's not easy, but I'm going to try to get him back on and I'll crowdsource a bunch of questions from the community. Thank you for joining me. I hope you have a wonderful day wherever you are in this beautiful world.